This is the documentary and one from RTE in Ireland. In today's documentary, we meet some of the people that do the difficult job of making the internet a safer place for everyone. Narrated by Sinead Kennedy, this is Age, Sex, Location. The conversation was just normal questions about what kind of things are you into? What kind of music do you like? Uh, mine was really obvious because I think my screen name at the time was something like Westlife Gal. <laughs> this is Rihanna. When she was 13 years old, she was a huge Westlife fan. My dad took us to all three concerts. We were just screaming the whole time and singing along. And my dad used to joke about how he was deafened after every one of them. Rhiannon was a typical 13-year-old. She loved hanging out with her best friend and arguing over which of the lads in Westlife was the best. But that innocent life was about to come to a sudden halt. It does seem like a really clear divide for me as to the before. You know, I was still a kid, like a proper kid, and I was still listening to... Westlife and immediately after this incident that happened, lost interest in a lot of things. The incident Rhiannon's talking about is a serious sexual assault that happened in real life but started online. Rhiannon is one of the very few people who've gone through an experience like this as a child online to speak publicly about what happened to her. I was so angry and I was so upset at everything. It was like I just grew up very quickly at that point, which is quite sad. One evening, Rhiannon started talking to a stranger online. This person was posing as a woman. We had what I can only describe as a normal conversation online. Less than 24 hours later, that stranger was in her bedroom assaulting her. There was a point where he said that I didn't look like I was enjoying it. You know, and how are people going to like these pictures if they don't think that you're enjoying it? You know, you need to smile and make make it look like you're happy, which made me just, it made me feel sick. I understand this documentary might be a challenge to listen to. And a warning, lots of it is not suitable for younger listeners. It's delving into an area that most of us are aware of, but wish didn't exist. We know you might want to switch off now, but... Child sexual abuse, particularly online abuse, is something that has exploded in recent years because of the internet. And if we're all more aware of that, well, then maybe we can help prevent it from happening. So please, if you can, stay with me. Back then, the internet was all about chat rooms and MSN Messenger and AOL Messenger. You know, this great new thing where you can meet people from the other side of the world. And I, and I thought that's what this was. You know, it was just making a friend online. The organisation I'm about to visit was set up to help children like Rhiannon by working to make the internet a safer place. Internet Watch Foundation. I'm at an unassuming business park on the outskirts of Cambridge in the UK. It's nothing out of the ordinary, but inside this building is the Internet Watch Foundation, where people are doing really difficult but necessary work. And one of them is an Irishman. Say if I was at a wedding and I was sitting at a table and I didn't know everybody at the table, I probably wouldn't tell too many strangers then about what I do because you just don't want to drag people into a conversation about this topic when everyone's trying to enjoy themselves at a party, you know. And actually, you don't know what's happened to some people in their past. It might be hard for them to hear. I can't tell you this man's real name. Most people you would think would agree that child abuse and child sexual abuse is a bad thing, but then there's other people that have the view that we're censoring the internet from things that they want to see. 
He goes by the pseudonym Henry, and he is a content analyst here at the Internet Watch Foundation. That means he gets images and videos of child abuse taken down from the internet. But to do that, real-life people like Henry have to spend their working day looking at those videos and images. We see all sorts of stuff, just the worst things you could possibly... Well, I was going to say you could imagine. Before I worked here, I couldn't even have imagined what is actually out there, you know? I don't think a normal person could imagine it. Like, it's just it's worse than you would ever, like, even dream of, I think. Children all over the world are being sexually and violently abused simply because people in other countries want to watch it happening, including here in Ireland. There's a warning this morning from Interpol that over the past six months, when schools were closed and millions of children were at home and online more, that abusers were more active and may have been targeting increased numbers of young people. The danger used to be the strange man on the street, but he's not on the street anymore. He can be in your house talking to your kid through your phone. And it happens at a higher volume than I think people realise. There are 46 hotlines dotted all over the world, all working towards the same goal, to remove child abuse imagery from the internet. The Internet Watch Foundation is the biggest in Europe, but there's a hotline in Ireland as well. We're a very small team, but we're all very passionate about what we do. It's something I'd take pride in. This is Owen who works in hotline.ie. I absolutely tell people what I do. I think the more I say it and the more people are aware of it, then the less taboo there will be because people don't talk about it. They don't talk about child sexual abuse in the reality of real world life and they don't talk about it in terms of online either. Unfortunately, it's there and it's an issue that needs to be probably more focused on and more resources put into it. In 2019, Hotline.ie classified and removed more child sexual abuse material than ever before, with public reports up 209%. As like an epidemic, we could spend our whole days looks stuff and we'd never run out of things to report, you know. It's everywhere, hiding in plain sight, really. 500 Gardaí have raided over 100 homes and businesses across the country as part of a crackdown on internet child pornography. An amount of pornographic material and computer component parts was seized during the raids, which started... The online sharing of child pornography has skyrocketed with the number of images being hosted on disguised websites also increasing. Now, this is according to hotline.ie. What was absolutely striking about this case was the apparent normality on the outside of this man. We see so much sexual exploitation of children now because technology is an enabler. This is Detective Sergeant Mike Smith. He works at the Online Child Exploitation Unit in Ongarda Shikona. And they are globally linked to all the players in the field. From Interpol, the FBI, Homeland Security, the IWF and all of the hotlines. We're working as a worldwide unit. It's a constant battle. As one of my good friends in law enforcement said, it takes a network to bring down a network. While Mike and his colleagues also spend some of their day looking at child sexual abuse material, their job is to try to identify victims and track down the perpetrators. We find very graphic material of children being sexually abused. And if we trace it back to an Irish user, our job is to get that child out as fast as possible, out of that scenario, and arrest the culprits. We have uh, rescued a number of children over the years People who want to abuse children online don't just stumble across them. 
they go looking for them. They go through hundreds of children before they hit on one or two or three or four. But they'll always hit on one or two or three or four. Any child that is online can be vulnerable to online predators. It's so difficult for children to speak out about their experiences, both because of their age and the lifelong damage the abuse can inflict on them. It's only now that the first generation of children who were abused online can speak out as adults. Rhiannon was a 13-year-old survivor. So I didn't have like masses and masses of friends. I had my best friend, the Westlife fan, <laughs> and we did like absolutely everything together. I was still quite quiet though. I stayed in and did a lot of reading. I loved reading books. I was still quite a shy child. These offences take place on platforms loads of us use all the time, every day. There's not like a, a hidden place where these kids are going. They're on the internet on a totally normal app. The sites themselves aren't dangerous. It's the fact that they know the apps and the websites that kids want to be on. And they'll just keep fishing for somebody until they interact with somebody that then falls for the trick and, and does whatever they want then. I used to see offenders taking a long time to groom children. So they would groom the parents, get the confidence to allow them to interact more freely with the child. They would then get one-on-ones with children. And that type of grooming took a long time, maybe years. And now online, I see grooming happening within a few lines of dialogue. The big thing since I started has been what we call self-generated images. There's kids from four years old to 16 years old that are obviously have access to a webcam. If you don't have a webcam, you have your phone, so you can record yourself and put yourself on the internet. So what happens is a lot of these kids are meeting people on different websites, different apps, and they're getting in conversations with adults who are then basically grooming them and getting them to take off their clothes, getting them to pose for them, getting to do all sorts of horrible things for them. When Rhiannon was 13 years old, social media was just coming of age. But the World Wide Web provided exciting ways to connect with people and talk to absolutely anyone, absolutely anywhere. Back then it was ASL would be the first question you asked, age, sex, location. So at the time I was 13 female Blackpool. And then that was followed up with a photo of my face to prove I was this 13-year-old girl. And she told me that I was really pretty. She told me that she was a model and that she thought I could be a model as well. I'd never seen myself as that. I wasn't the pretty girl. And, you know, for somebody to be saying that they thought that I could be, I was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And she said that she started off just like me, that she had no confidence and that she didn't think she was pretty but she got a break and she got into modeling and she does really well at it so i started to get drawn into what she was saying unbeknownst to her rhiannon was being groomed she asked for some more photos this is happening all over the world and ireland is no exception detective sergeant mike smith sees it all the time they ask children like their age their gender where they're located. Very quickly they're getting into asking them questions about do they have boyfriends, do they have girlfriends, would they like to have one, would they kiss them? And then very quickly into describing a sexually explicit act. And most children who are not vulnerable will walk away from that conversation. But a sizable minority of children 
will continue to engage. And that's all they want. Rhiannon's conversation with her new online friend began in the afternoon and went on into the night. I didn't realise at the time, like, how much information I'd actually given out to her. Within a few hours of me talking to her, you know, she knew roughly where I lived. She knew who my friends were at school. I told her what school I went to. You know, she knew that I didn't have the best relationship with my dad and my stepmom at the time. She knew that I was a shy girl with not much confidence. At the Internet Watch Foundation, people are trying to undo some of the harm that has been done to children like Rhiannon. We've just come up to the first floor of the building and I'm just standing outside the hotline office now. Up the stairs where Henry works, access is restricted. You go through the first door and we enter into, I guess what you call it, it's like a little airlock. And we close the door behind us and we have some lockers in here where anybody that's coming into the hotline stores their phones because we just don't allow any recording equipment inside for obvious reasons. In front of us here is another locked door, which we can only open with our fobs and only people that are allowed to view images have the fob to get in there. Anybody else has to ring the doorbell. So everybody inside shuts down their computers and it's just blank screens. Basically, that's the protocol. So. Everybody shut down their stuff for a couple of minutes. Okay, we're all shut down. There are 13 analysts that work in this room, a mix of men and women, all ages from all walks of life. There are ex-teachers, chefs, former military personnel and people coming from academia. Some have families, others don't. As you can see, all the blinds are pulled closed and we're on the first floor, obviously, because we don't want people to be able to look in through the windows because of the sense of content that's on the screens. Most people panic if they happen to stumble across child sexual abuse images or videos on the internet. They'll navigate away and try to forget about it. But if those images or videos go unreported, they'll just stay up there on the internet. Okay, so today I'm working on public reports, basically members of the public who've seen something that they think might contain child sexual abuse. It might be a video or an image. Members of the public can report images or videos anonymously to the hotline. So you never know with public reports what is going to be there when you click the link that's sent to you. You haven't got a clue. A lot of the time people report things that they just find offensive that they found on the internet and it has nothing to do with, like, child sexual abuse. We got a lot of reports that there had been a terrorist attack somewhere and it was recorded by the person that did the attack and we got a lot of those videos reported to us. So we had, to, like, we were watching basically people be killed because you have to open up everything just in case there is child abuse stuff there. It isn't just child sexual abuse you see every day. Most of the time you're just opening them up and there could be anything there. So what we would call a category C is like an indecent image, but it might be like of a child posing in a sexual pose with no other activity going on. A category B is like a sexual act, but there's no penetration in the act involving the child. And then a category A is an image or a video of a child engaging in penetrative sexual activity with an adult. As no media outlet is allowed into the analyst's viewing room, we've arranged for Henry to carry in an audio recorder to share with us what he sees on a daily basis, a world largely hidden for many of us. What you're about to hear is the reality of online child sexual abuse. You may find this disturbing and unsettling. So I've just opened up my list of websites for the day. And so I've just opened up the exact same URL that was reported. And now we're seeing content of child sexual abuse, basically. So on this page, we're seeing a lot of category A penetrative 
images. There's children very young. There's images of young infants that we'd categorize as zero to two. Yeah, there's images of children of all ages on this page, actually. Um, there's images of children engaged in sexual acts with animals. Yeah, so there's a lot of bad, bad stuff on this website. Yeah, we're seeing different ethnicities as well. But this looks like it definitely has 100 to 200 images on it in just one page. Determining the origin of abuse material is a complex process. While the abuse may have occurred in a family home in Asia, let's say, it may be hosted on a server in Europe before being viewed all over the world. So tracking down the source and identifying victims is tough. Predators work very hard to ensure that they don't leave any clues in the material they produce, making the job that much more difficult for law enforcement and hotline analysts. So I'll work away on this report and I'll send the details off to the relevant hotline in the relevant country and they'll work on taking it down as fast as possible. 13-year-old Rhiannon was talking to someone she believed was a woman in her 20s. It was, in fact, a man in his 50s. When I was younger, I developed quite early and I had had boobs and I was really self-conscious about it. And she then started talking about how, you know, she did topless modelling as well. And she thought that, you know, I'd be ideal for that. And at first I was a bit like, "Mm, no, that's not really something that I'd be interested in. But she really, she spent a long time talking to me about how, you know, it's it's not a big deal. She asked me for a photo, topless, and she spent so long talking me round to it that eventually I just thought, you know, what's the harm in doing this? It's not like this person's here in my room and taking my clothes off in front of them. You know, that online aspect of it, it made it feel like it wasn't real life what was happening. And so I sent a topless photo and her whole demeanour changed after that. She wanted more images and she wanted me to do more things. And instead of complimenting me and trying to reassure and encourage me into doing things, her demeanour then was that, well, I've got a picture of you topless. So if you don't do what I want you to do now... I'm going to send it to your school. I'm going to make sure that all your friends see it. I'm going to make sure your parents see it. You know, and everyone's going to see what a dirty, horrible girl you've been and what you've been up to. And to me, that was terrifying. You know, as a 13-year-old girl, I don't think there's anything that you would feel would be worse for you than everybody at school seeing something like this and, you know, your parents finding out. Grooming and blackmailing is something that Detective Sergeant Mike sees on a daily basis. I have seen children within 15 lines of dialogue up in their bedroom sexually abusing themselves on a webcam at the behest of someone. That is within minutes. And the effect of that is they have them and then they hold them for a long period of time, either through believing they are in a relationship with that offender or the offender starts exploiting them, extorting them, threatening them, threatening they'll kill their parents. Analysts like Henry must view every second of the content that is reported to them, because at any point throughout, clues might emerge that could identify the victim or the perpetrator. I came across 
a particular case where there was a girl. Altogether, we had 14 hours of footage of this one girl. And she was like a young teenager. She thought she was talking to somebody her own age. Then it turned out to be a grown man, basically, on her webcam. He took a screenshot out of it. And then he used that screenshot to blackmail her, saying, I'm going to send the screenshot around to all your friends. So he basically wanted her to turn up every month at a certain date and basically put on a show for him. And the difference was in this one, you could actually see the text of the conversations they were having because it was appearing on screen. It was basically like watching somebody being groomed in front of your eyes, but you couldn't do anything about it. And it was kind of just really heartbreaking to watch her because you could just see her face and she was just like totally panicking at the beginning, you know, so like you could see her mind racing. How am I going to get out of this? What will I do? She was typing things, you know, like pleading with him, which was really hard to see. And then there was hours of this. Every time he asked her to get online for him, basically, she'd come back and, and do whatever he said again. And by the end of it, she was just like, one of the last videos, she was just totally broken. Like her face was just like, you know, dead, no emotion. And it was so bad that even the the guy that was blackmailing her on the other side, I never forget it, actually asked her like, oh, why, why don't you cry anymore? And she was just like, what's the point? I mean, you're just going to make me do this anyway, so there's no point to getting upset about it anymore. But it was really hard to watch that case because you were just watching someone from the beginning to end of the grooming process. And Gardy seized computer equipment and on that they found files which were in the most serious category. They were vile images and videos in the words of Judge Sean O'Donovan. 52-year-old man from Cap Quinn pleaded guilty to possession of child pornography at his home. In Ireland, 250 people were prosecuted in the last three years for online child pornography offences. That's the first time you've heard me say the words child pornography, by the way. And that's only because the Irish law is actually called the Child Trafficking and Pornography Act. But people who work in this area, like Owen in Hotline.ie, will not call it pornography. They'll call it what it is, child abuse. Terms like child pornography or even worse, kiddie porn, child porn, are really just avoiding what the issue is. It's not calling it what it is, it's, it doesn't capture the realities. By definition, the term pornography, in terms of adult pornography, legal pornography, there's always an element of consent with it. As soon as a child is involved, all element of consent is out the window, and the reality is that it's real children who cannot give consent, oftentimes can't even talk for themselves, being sexually abused to sometimes a horrific nature and it is abuse. The term child pornography is also an issue for Detective Sergeant Mike Smith in the Online Child Exploitation Unit in Ungarda Síkána. The Child Trafficking and Pornography Act came into being in 1998. The name of it is very problematic. It's antiquated and it, it gives pedophiles a justification, but it's the legislation. Can I say it's one of the finest pieces of legislation and the statute books. They covered so many eventualities that wouldn't have ever happened in 1998 and now a reality. It has very severe penalties, much stronger than the most of our European neighbours have. Sexually exploiting a child comes with a life imprisonment sentence. There's no way to determine how many people around the world are logging on in search of child abuse material every day. It is illegal to view this material and many of them will want to take it one step further and try to exploit a child in person. If a person has a sexual interest in children, they will almost inevitably try to act that out in real life. Some of the studies say that 
upwards of 80% of people who are viewing online child exploitation material are themselves contact offenders. So the goal is always to sexually exploit a child. And that's exactly what happened to Rhiannon as a 13-year-old. She told me that she had spoken to her boss, that he liked the look of me. She said that he wanted to come to my house the following morning and get some proper professional photos done as part of a portfolio so that I could start working. And she asked me for my address and I initially said, no, I don't want to give that out. I knew that that was wrong. I knew I shouldn't give my address to anybody. By this point, I was terrified and I didn't want any part of it. But I didn't know what I could do because she had multiple images of me. That was the thing that stopped me doing anything was just the fear that anybody would know what I had done. So I ended up confirming what my address was. You know, this this whole conversation took place over the course of those hours in that one day. So it all happened really quickly. I logged off and tried to go to sleep and I was just petrified. On any given morning, Henry and his colleagues in the hotline will have already seen a vast quantity of images and videos depicting violent crimes against children. Within the first hour, we've probably seen 400 images of child abuse material. Every now and then you do have a kind of a moment where you go like, my God, the scale of this is just incredible, you know, and it just keeps coming and coming and coming. I think sometimes people think, oh, you know, well, I've never seen any child abuse stuff online and I'm online every day, so how much stuff could there possibly be? I guarantee you <laughs> there is, like, thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of stuff out there. I have heard of analysts who have been disheartened by the amount of content that comes in, and I can see how that is disheartening. But for me, I think if I was constantly thinking about, oh, my God, how is there still this much content coming in, you'd lose faith in everything you were doing. The reality is the content is there and there are children being abused and that is being recorded. You just kind of need to face it and think, okay, well, this is the situation. What can I do to help it? The following morning, my stepmom came into my bedroom and she said that she was going into town to go shopping and she asked me if I wanted to go with her. And I had this horrible dilemma. I just wanted to tell her what had happened and just say, please help me but I was too scared. I told her that I wasn't feeling so good and just told her to go on her own. And then shortly after she'd gone, I had the crazy idea that maybe if I'm not here, then nothing will happen. I went downstairs because we lived in a flat, went outside and out the corner of my eye, I saw a, a man leaning against a wall. My stomach dropped and I instinctively knew that 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 was him. For the analysts and police, the content is extremely challenging to watch. What they are seeing online are crimes that stretch across borders, right across the globe. It's rare to get an insight into how these people work, but when we do, it is graphic and unsettling. So a big rise is what's known to us as live streaming. It's also known as digital trafficking. And it is where children 
uh, being sexually assaulted and raped by family members at the behest of people in the Western world. That is primarily located at the moment in Southeast Asia. It is very easy now for someone in Dublin to watch a child being live raped in the Philippines. Something they would have had to travel to before involved all sorts of logistics, huge amounts of money. 30 euros would be an average to have a child sexually abused and raped in Southeast Asia by someone. Like Mike, Henry has to look at really extreme imagery every day. A lot of people might think like that maybe like newborn infants would be safe from it, but it's not. We see videos of like 18-month-old babies being abused in all sorts of horrific ways. I think most analysts would probably say that they're the hardest ones, hardest videos or images to see, you know. It's very hard to watch children being raped and sexually abused on a daily basis and you have to be able to deal with it. You never really get hurt. I, I mean, do you ever really get hurt into it, you know? I couldn't really see it happening in a human because it is generally so personal and so graphic and up close. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to steel yourself against it. For Henry to get this job, he had to make sure that he would be able to cope with viewing this content every single day. As I was going through the interview phase, I had the thought in my mind, actually, would I be able to do this? I don't know, because I'd never seen child sexual abuse material before. And then you get to the point where they say, OK, we're going to show you some child abuse material now, basically to see how you react and if you can handle it. And up to that very point, before he pressed the button, I really was like, this could go... Like, I could look at it and go, okay, I could think I can deal with this or I could nearly run out of the room. I really don't know how I'm going to react. When it did appear, it was really shocking. The first time you see it, really, really shocking. They say to you, okay, you've seen some images. Go away for the weekend. Think about, is this what you want to do? And if you can handle it, doing it every day. And I just, by the time I got to the end of that day, I just kind of felt like I was back to myself again already. And I just thought, actually, I do think I'll be able to do this every day. They don't just... When you get hired, sit you down in front of a computer and, and say, like, off you go. You gradually build a resilience to it slowly over the first few months. And they start you off on, on just looking at still images first. And then you might start looking at videos after a couple of weeks, which is harder, basically, to deal with because there's sounds involved. And it's just, obviously, a video is going to be a lot more graphic than a, than a still image. I have lots of coping mechanisms. I go for walks, go for runs, I cycle a lot, I yoga, lots of music. At the hotline, counselling is mandatory and they have to be sure to take regular breaks. Every now and then, obviously, you have a bad day. You know, there's certain things I've seen that, like, would really, like, just, like, you know, it would break your heart. But the idea that you can help people is a lot stronger than that. And everybody helps each other come back when they're having a bad time or a bad day up there. It's a very supportive environment. For those working in this area, they are driven by wanting to save children from potential abuse and damaging experiences. For 13-year-old Rhiannon, who was home alone that afternoon, her online nightmare was about to become a real-life nightmare. I ran inside and up to the flat and was thinking, oh, my God, I hope he didn't see me. And then my phone rang and it was him and he said, I just saw you. Are you going to come and let me in? I was frozen. I was just terrified because I just thought there's there's literally no way out of this for me now. I didn't know what to do. I didn't feel like I had any other option. So I opened the door to our flat and he pushed his way through and he led me into the first room off the off the landing, which happened to be my bedroom. 
and um, he told me straight away that he had printed off the images from the conversation the night before, that he'd put those onto a disc as well, and that if I didn't do what he told me to do, or if I tried to tell anybody what was happening, that he was going to show those to everybody. He carried on the pretense of that he was the, the boss of the lady I'd spoken to the night before, and that he was there to take photos for a portfolio. And he turned up with professional camera equipment. It, it was terrifying when he was, when he was there, you know, just stood there in my bedroom, you know, the, this 50 odd year old man who, he, he was quite a big guy. I was terrified of what he was gonna do because I didn't feel like I had any power in the situation. I didn't feel like I could say no or fight him off. And I didn't know what he was gonna want to do. You know, I, it did cross my mind if he could, you know, he could kill me here and nobody, nobody's here to help me. And he sexually assaulted me there in my bedroom. He did things to me, he made me do things to myself and he made me do things to him. And um, he took photos of the whole ordeal. A few years ago, Mike and his colleagues were involved with a particularly difficult case in a town in the Republic of Ireland. Australian police briefed Gardaí about a child pornography website it had traced where a man was attempting to organise the exchange of abusive images. When Australian police reported those images of child sexual abuse, they knew that they had been filmed here in Ireland and that the situation was ongoing. And the material was of an adult male abusing a six-year-old child. And... Uh, he was willing to abuse that child again that night. We set up a task force, including ourselves, um, from the Online Child Exploitation Unit, the local detective unit, and the local Tusla office to get to that house within hours. And when we got to that house, we found the offender in the house. We also found, as we walked in the doorway, the six-year-old child was standing before us. Um, which had a very big effect on people from the unit because we rarely see someone who we've seen abused online so recently uh, standing in front of us. So we got that child out and that child's siblings as well out of that house. That was, you know, a euphoria, you know, that you'd, you'd got that child and you had saved that child from abuse. That's one of our proudest moments, taking them children out there because they were children that were in very dreadful circumstances. Today in court, Detective Garda Siobhan Doyle said it was one of the worst cases they had come across. It was a great relief to us to save that child. That man didn't just start offending a few days before we caught him. That man undoubtedly had a sexual interest in children for years, if not decades before. The computer files Gardaí found contained more than 11,000 images and 67 video files of child pornography, in some of which the six-year-old could be identified. The children were taken into the care of social workers and the man and his brother were arrested. The culprit hadn't filmed it himself. It was filmed by the suspect's brother. Both of them have been imprisoned. When asked in court why he did it, the offender said, 
It was because the child was there. Eventually he left and I, the first thing I did was go and jump in the shower because I, I just felt dirty physically, emotionally. You know, there was, there was nothing in that moment that could have persuaded me to tell somebody what, what had just happened. I didn't want anybody to know about it. I tried to just forget that it ever happened. After six months of living in fear, Rhiannon got a phone call one evening from a man on a private number. He said that he was with the police, that they had found my details on somebody's computer and that they had reason to believe that I'd been hurt and that they needed to come and speak to me and, you know, see if I was okay and see what had happened. Could I let them know where I live now? I'd been brought up to, you know, to cooperate with the police and that they were there to help me. So I, di I didn't hesitate when he asked me for the address. But as soon as I put the phone down... I completely panicked. Firstly, I didn't even know whether this was a man from the police. I thought, how can you be so stupid? You, what have you done? And secondly, if it was the police, you know, everyone's about to find out exactly what's happened and what you've done. And I was terrified and, and I, ran, I ran away to one of my friend's house about three miles away. And by the time I got there, I was... <sighs> I couldn't breathe. Her and her mum wanted to know what was going on, why I'd just turned up on their doorstep hysterical and I could barely even talk to tell them. My dad started ringing me and I kept hanging up and eventually my friend's mum answered the phone and then he came and picked me up. And I was so scared because I thought he was going to tell me off. I thought he was going to tell me I was stupid and he didn't. He'd, barely said a word to me we just we just got in the car and he drove me home and you know he held my hand most of the way home and we were both just crying it was awful and um when I got home I walked into a living room full of family and police officers and I just you know I knew that everybody knew at that point the man who assaulted Rhiannon was sentenced to 13 years in total, seven years alone for the crimes he committed against her. But for Rhiannon, the ordeal wasn't over. I really tried to, to move on. I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to talk about it with anybody. I, it had a really very serious impact on me. I had anxiety. You know, it got to a point where I was having panic attacks two or three times every day. There was days where I didn't feel like I could leave the house. I had depression. I was self-harming. I tried to kill myself twice. I had real anger problems. I had real problems with relationships, you know, with my family, my friends, any personal relationships. I didn't trust anybody. Um, I thought that everybody was going to hurt me. I just... When I look back at that period of my life now, it's like there's a black cloud hanging over it. Sexual and physical abuse takes its toll. But with abuse that has an online element, the survivors face yet another dimension. Revictimization, having no control over the fact that their images can be shared over and over again online. Unfortunately, no image is really gonna be gone forever because you can't clear everybody's hard drives 
And just because you've got it off the internet doesn't mean you've cleared it from some offender's computer. So unfortunately, we can do our best to remove videos and images, but it is kind of like a whack-a-mole thing. The guy who put up those images could the next day just put them up somewhere else and then we'd have to find them and take them down. I have no idea what happened with the images that he had of me. Obviously, I know that they were on his computer or his devices. I don't know if they were ever shared online or shared with any other people. For years, I was terrified about that because, you know, I was scared that somebody might recognise me. You know, I felt sick knowing that he or that anyone else could be using those for, you know, pleasure. It's an awful thing because the... The incident happened, you know, that stopped and I've moved past that. But those images, you know, if they've been shared and copies made and shared again, you know, it's almost impossible to, to stop that. You know, it's like that image could be out there forever and there's no clawing it back. We do deal with cases where, the, where just people constantly in touch with us saying, oh, I found another image of myself on this website, can you take it down? And then two days later, they'll say, oh, I found an image here on this one, can you take that down, please? It is a problem. It's hard to stop it from being uploaded. That's why if you just want children to be aware, anybody to be aware that if you put an image of yourself anywhere on the internet, it's probably going to be there forever. Parents don't really see the dangers of online. They believe their children are in the front room, they're not outside the house, the bogeyman can't get them, you know, they can't be assaulted. There's no one going to bully them in the front room. And all these things happen, unfortunately, in the front room. Sometimes in the videos that we watch, you can hear, like, someone's parents on the other side of the door knocking in, asking them, is everything OK in there? And they shout out, yeah, everything's fine, while they're in the process of doing this. Most of the time, they're just doing it in their bedrooms. You know, they're recording themselves in their bedrooms, they're recording themselves in their bathrooms, in their family home. You're just so frustrated because you're like, please open the door, you can stop this. The anonymity that the internet provides, it's scary in the way that it's provided them such a, a useful tool to do what they need to do. But at the same time, we can't all be paralysed by fear of this happening. If you don't give a child a phone nowadays, you are excluding them from their community. And there's lots of good things that happen on the internet. And I would not despair a child to protect them from interacting with that technology. But just keep yourself updated. Go to webwise.ie, a great site. The most important thing is to engage in this area with your children wasn't until I was 22 that I finally got counselling for what happened and even all these years later I still thought that it was my fault you know so the counsellor helped me to come to terms with all of that by the time I was recovering it had been a decade of living like this and um, and it was really hard although I have come through it and I have come to terms with all of it and I have recovered it does still leave lasting effects and there's some things that I don't think will ever go. Rhiannon qualified as a lawyer and now uses her experience to raise awareness of online child sexual abuse. Anybody that's been through trauma can recover from this with the right support and they can go on to live 
safe, happy and fulfilling lives. If you've seen child exploitation online, you know you've got to do something to help and report the content to your national hotline. We can't pretend this isn't happening. Even though it's not pleasant to talk about it, we simply must. And please, if you are talking about it, let's not call it child pornography. Let's call it what it is, child abuse. Age Sex Location was narrated by Sinead Kennedy. It was produced by Sinead Kennedy and Nicolene Greer. Sound supervision was by Mark Dwyer. If you would like information on how to protect you or your children online, please see webwise.ie. If you come across child abuse material, please report it to hotline.ie or to the Internet Watch Foundation, iwf.org.uk. And if you suspect somebody you know is being abused, please contact your local police station or on Garda Síochána via your local Garda station or on the Garda Confidential line 1800 666 111. If you have been affected by issues raised in this documentary, please contact Carrie in Ireland or the Marie Collins Foundation in the UK. Until next time, thanks for listening.